Well, I want to reiterate on the Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, remember I said last week we're going to have pew Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, please take this as your own Bible. Uh, we definitely want to offer that to you. And if you are going to use the Bible today, we will be on page 497. It makes it easy to reference. In the Black Pew Bibles, page 497. If you need that reference. <laughs> or... Isaiah chapter 15. That's where we're going to be at this morning. And let's go ahead and let's pray. Lord God, we again just thank you as has been repeated for so many times this morning for who you are. We can never thank you enough as we dive into the depths of all that you've done for us in our lives, in the past and even now and in the future, Lord God. We just thank you for your love towards us. And even as we'll see this morning, your discipline and judgment towards us, Lord God, because you love us. And so we thank you for that. We pray this morning, Lord God, that you would speak to each and every one of our hearts as each and every one of us are in different places and different things are going on in our lives. And we come this morning to be refreshed by your spirit through the power of, of your word. And so we pray that and ask for you to bless our time together. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Isaiah chapter 15, the title of this morning's message is Tears in Heaven, and I'm sorry if you get the Eric Clapton song in your head, and if you didn't have it, you have it now, so uh, sorry again, we're not going to be preaching on that. As I mentioned in my prayer, we're going to be talking about discipline. Is there anybody in here, you don't have to raise your hand, (laughs) that enjoys dishing out discipline on a person? You might be thinking, well, I know a few people who like it, like maybe my boss or something. But it's not an enjoyable thing to do, even as a parent. Some of the kids might be going, yeah, right. My parents love to dish out discipline, and they do it very well. But even as a parent, those of you that are parents, you may, and even in the workplace, I was thinking of this, when you have to discipline somebody, it's not fun. And sometimes you could grieve over, right, the fact that you have to dish out some discipline. You know, we've all heard that phrase, it's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, right, from our parents. But I remember, I mean, I can, I can think about the times that we dish out discipline. You know, you get, you know, in knots in your stomach because you don't want to do it, but you have to do it. It's the right thing to do, and it's deserved. And sometimes you could get emotional while you're delivering the discipline with somebody. And I'm going to say that this morning, as we look at the text, you'll even find out that God expresses himself in the text we'll see this morning that he cries over disciplining have you ever thought about we don't think about that right especially when we've been reading through isaiah god looks like this judgment is coming down and some people will even describe it that god looks like a mean god he always wants to discipline somebody that he's waiting to like drop the hammer on somebody but as we'll see in the text that it even grieves god when he has to discipline his children and even those who are not his children And you'll see this morning when we go through the text. So just by way of a little bit of background, I want to say this and and remind everybody, as we go through chapters 13 through 23 of Isaiah, it's good to remember this, that God through the prophet Isaiah is telling Judah that they cannot trust in the nations around them for strength and security. And so that's why we see all these nations that are around Judah that God is speaking to. Again, we looked at Babylon and Assyria and Philistia last week. And this morning we'll look at the 
country of Moab, and in the future we'll see Egypt and a few more. And again, the Lord is demonstrating to Israel, his people, that he is sovereign over these nations and over human history. And he's demonstrating that through these pronouncements through Isaiah. And he's telling them, don't trust in these nations for security. Stop running to them looking for help because they cannot provide that for you. Only I can do it. And so that's why he's going through, like I said, over these 10 chapters that we look at and showing them the judgment that's going to come on them and that they themselves are too weak to save you. And so, like I said, we're going to look at Moab this morning. And just by way of a little reference of who is Moab or what is Moab? Well, Moab is the area just south of Judah. So if you were to look at a map, like in the back of your pew Bible, there's one. There's Moab, and it's just southeast of Judah, and it's east of the Dead Sea. It is in modern-day Jordan. If you think of the country of Jordan, that's where it is. And so the Moabites, they are descendants from a man named Moab, who was the son of Lot. You might remember Lot, who Abraham is Abraham's nephew, right? Lot had lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, his son was Moab. And you may also remember that there's a famous woman from the Moabites. There's actually a book of the Bible named after her. Her name is Ruth. She's from Moab, right? She marries Boaz, who is actually the, and she's actually the great-grandmother of King David. So the Moabites, there's a connection, a strong connection between the people of God and the Moabites. And Ruth is in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ as well. So there's a close connection there. But unfortunately, the Moabites and the Israelites didn't always get along. Matter of fact, you might remember during the time of Moses, there's a, the king of the Moabites, Balak. He was the king of the Moabites, and he hired a man named Balaam to prophesy against Israel. And Balaam was the guy that had a donkey speak to him. In the book of Judges, the Moabites were said to oppress the Israelites for 18 years until Ehud... A judge went and stabbed Eglon. You might remember this a few years ago. He went through the judges, and Eglon was the fat king of Moab. And Ehud put his hand in his stomach and killed him, and his hand went into his stomach, and then he had to pull it out. He was just such an overweight king. And then later on, during the the time of King David, Moab became a vassal state to Israel. And then eventually, when there was a split between the northern and, and southern tribes of Israel... Moab sees that opportunity to break away from Israel, to revolt and seek their independence. But later on, King Omri of Israel, we conquered Moab, and the strife between them had carried on over and over, which brings us to the time that we are now. So there's not a, a very good relationship, in a sense, between the Moabites and Israel. As a matter of fact, as I started to say at the beginning, Israel, is the, or Judah particularly, is thinking about maybe seeking shelter with the Moabites as they look for the coming judgment from Assyria. And so that brings us to the text this morning in verse 1 of chapter 15, where it says, the oracle concerning Moab. Now, just real quick, as we go through this, I want to highlight, you're going to hear a bunch of names of cities within Moab. And you, you might get lost as you're like not making a connection with them. But just think of this as if somebody was to pronounce judgment on the nation, our nation, the United States, and they said from New York to Los Angeles, 
there will be mourning or destruction. So that's kind of what's going on. These cities are prominent in Moab, but they're to highlight the, the complete and utter devastation of Moab and the distance that's gonna, that the mourning is going to be felt. So just think, that, think of that as we go along, and, and I'll highlight some of the cities as we, as we move forward. Okay. So here we go. The oracle concerning Moab. Surely in a night, Ar of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely in a night, Ker of Moab is devastated and ruined. And that's why I said, just think of, it'd be like, in a day, New York will be devastated. In a day, Los Angeles will be devastated. This is what's going on. Carrying on in verse 2. They have gone up to the temple and to Dibon, even to the high places to weep. Moab wails over Nebo and Mediba. So again, there's two cities within the country of Moab. Again, signifying the, the breadth of destruction and the wailing. Everyone's head is bald and every beard is cut off. In their streets, they have girded themselves with sackcloth. On their housetops and in their squares, everyone is wailing, dissolved in tears. Heshbon and Elale also cry out. Their voice is heard in all, all the way to Jahaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles within him. So let me stop right here again. Isaiah is highlighting just the devastation that is going to come upon Moab. And hopefully you can see and sense the destruction and the, the fear that's come upon the people of Moab. It even says here, in, I think it's verse 4, yeah, that the armed men of Moab cry out loud. So even their army is afraid of the destruction. It's going to be so severe and so devastating that there's going to be nobody left that has strength to fight. That's what the prophet is trying to describe here with Moab. And before we move on, I want to point out a few things. Why is God declaring judgment upon Moab? What has Moab done? Well, if you look at chapter 16 real quick, which we'll study next week, and go to 16 verse 6, because this is the second half of the oracle, and we'll study it next week. He says, we have heard the pride of Moab an excessive pride, even on his arrogance, pride and fury, his idle boasts are false. So specifically, it's the pride and the arrogance why God is judging Moab. They're very prideful and arrogant towards God, obviously. So that's one reason. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, another reason is it's a sign to Judah, a sign that demonstrates that God is in control of all things. You can't run, you can't hide into something else for safety and security. God is even over those who you think are strong. And it's a sign that demonstrates that Judah must not trust their own strength, but they must run to God. God is calling Judah back to himself, and he's doing that by showing that he's going to judge all the things that they think are going to save them. And so for God's judgment, that's what he's talking about there. So let's look at the second half, starting in verse 5. And it starts out and says, My heart cries out for Moab. 
And this is where I got the title about tears in heaven. This is God speaking through Isaiah. My heart cries out for Moab. So even in the midst of God's judgment, he's crying for the people of Moab. And look at what he says. His fugitives are as far as Zoar and Iglath and Shelish Haya. So again, he's signifying that these fugitives, of the, uh, these fugitives are refugees are in this long line from one city to the other, and God sees all this. And he's crying out for them. He sees that the refugees are fleeing. For they go up to the ascent of Luhith, weeping. Surely on the road to Horonayim, they raise a cry of distress over their ruin. For the waters of Nimrim are desolate. Surely the grass is withered. The tender grass dries are died out. There is no green thing. Therefore, the abundance which they have acquired and stored up, they carry over the brook of Arabim. For the cry of distress has gone around the territory of Moab. Its wail goes as far as Iglaim, and its wailing even to Bir Elim. For the waters of Dimon are full of blood. Surely I will bring added woes upon Dimon, a lion upon the fugitives of Moab, and upon the remnant of the land." And so that's the oracle that God speaks through Isaiah. So let's point out a couple of things here. And let's, let's again, go back to the judgment side. And that's, you see in the very first four verses on the judgment of God. And there's three things I want to point out here about God's judgment on Moab. Number one, it is sure. God, over and over again through the prophet Isaiah in, in verse 1, says, Surely this is going to happen, and surely that is going to happen. What God decrees is going to come about, and nobody can stop it, as we learned last week in chapter 14, when God said he's going to judge Assyria, and nothing can stop him. Right? So God decrees what he decrees is going to happen. It may not come the way that we think or they think, and it may not even happen at the time that you think it's going to happen, but if God says he's going to judge something, it's going to happen. It's similar to when your mom would say, you wait till your father gets home, you're going to get in trouble. And so I remember as a little kid, me and my brother would be in fear until my dad got home. We're hoping he would get home so late that we would be asleep or something and he would forget. But no, my mom's word was sure she was going to tell my dad and it was my brother's fault, so he got in trouble. (laughs) Take one for the team. God's decree is sure. One thing I want to say, and just as by way of warning for all of us, is don't think, you know, if we've done something or we're doing something in sin, don't mistake God's patience as his approval or lack of concern for what we're doing when we break God's laws. Second Peter 3.9, let me read this to you. It says, The Lord is not slow in his promise, as some understand slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And I would say this, if you felt like, hey, you know what, God's going to punish me, don't sit there and wait for it. Repent. God might be waiting for you to repent and shining grace upon you. And don't, again, think that, oh, well, God hasn't, you know, some people might think, oh, well, God hasn't come back. He's not really going to come. You know, that's just what people say all the time in Scripture. Again, don't count the, the Lord slow in His purpose or promises. Right? He is just patient. He's not wanting anyone to perish. And I praise God for that. 
So even in God's judgment, he is sure it's going to happen. It might not happen when we think or when we would have wanted it to happen or the way that it was going to come, that way that we thought it might happen. But God says, surely it will come and surely it will. Second thing to point out about God's judgment is it is going to be complete. As I said, in the descriptions that we see here in Isaiah, it is going to reach every major city on Moab. And some of those cities that I read off were major cities and important cities within Moab. And again, it would be like saying judgment is coming on Chicago and San Francisco and Los Angeles. I mean, just think of the major cities in our country. If someone were to wipe them out, what that would mean for us. All commerce might stop. The financial district in New York was destroyed. Wall Street. It would be like somebody describing that. And that's what's going to happen in Moab. That it's going to be complete. It's going to reach every major city. It will come to every corner of their land. And it is even going to come against their religion. Did you see that here in verse 2? It says, They have gone up to the temple and to Dibon, even to the high places to weep. They've sought after God's forgiveness or their God's forgiveness at the time because it was a pagan temple. And God's going to destroy that too. So Moab's religion is not going to save them. Not only that, it's going to affect the rivers. In verse 6, look at this again. For the waters of Nimrim are desolate. Surely the grass is withered. The tender grass dried out. There is no green thing. And then, carrying on, they, it talks about one of the rivers being full of blood. Again, God is going to de- devastate everything in Moab. So his judgment is going to be sure. It's going to be complete. And again, he wants to demonstrate for the nation of Israel that Moab is not stronger than God. They cannot save them. And he does this by showing that they're going to mourn from the distress of the situation. Their military will mourn, as I mentioned. The refugees will flee. And they cannot hide from the judgment. That's what verse 9 is about. Look at verse 9 again. It says, surely I've added woes upon Dimon and a line upon the fugitives of Moab and upon the remnant of the land. So as the fugitives seek shelter and try to escape, he says he's going to bring a a line upon them. Even in their running for another protection, God can still get to them and he's going to bring judgment upon them. So God's judgment is sure it's completed and it will demonstrate the weakness of Moab for themselves and for Judah. But the great thing about God is he's not a God of vengeance solely. Look at, again, going through verses 5 and 9, as I mentioned in the beginning, God's love in his judgment. I want to point that out. Again, look at verse 5. It says, my heart cries out for Moab. Even in the midst of judgment, God is crying for people to come to him. Like, hey, I'm disciplining you for a reason. I'm judging you for a reason. Again, going back to us as parents, when we discipline our children, we might be angry with what they have done, but it's so that they will be corrected in the things that they have done wrong. The same thing is true with God, and he cries out for Moab. God sees the refugees who are in distress. He sees them uselessly searching for food and water as they go to these springs, and he says they're going to be dried out. God sees all that. And he sees them desperately clinging to their possessions, right? It says that in verse 7 that the abundance which they have acquired and stored up, they carry off the brook of Arabim. 
So God sees these refugees who are being judged. They're, they're helplessly gathering, are uselessly gathering all their belongings and trying to find safety. It's like somebody who's being disciplined and they won't give up their things. They grab onto the things that they think they need and they stay in their sin over and over again and they will not give them up instead of crying out to God or crying out for help. I think of it as a parent when you have to turn your child away from staying in your home. But if they would just listen and obey and do the things that you've called them to do, that they can stay home and live with you. But they won't. They want to, they're going to gather their things, and I'm going to do it my way and rebel against you, and they're going to suffer out there. And it breaks the heart of parents as they see that. The same thing with God. God is like not judging them for, no, for just no apparent reason. They've sinned, and he needs to correct them. He's trying to call them back to himself. And it breaks his heart when they refuse to do that. And he has to discipline them. He has to. He must, which is the second point, he must let judgment run its course. God must let judgment run its course. First of all, it demonstrates the character of God, that God is just. God is just. And justice must be served. Not only does it demonstrate the character of God, it demonstrates his love. Because he uses it again to wake people up to the reality of their weakness. And it should cause them to cry out to God. But it doesn't, right? They run off. The refugees leave Moab. They seek shelter for some, from somewhere else and not for God. So even in judgment, God has demonstrated his, his love. He's saying, I can't help you until you see your need for help. So he has to discipline them. Let it run its course so that they see that they need to cry out for God. I think of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament when he talks about somebody that's sinning in the church and then they get excommunicated from the church. The purpose of that is so that you will realize, you know, I've in so much sin that the church has told me I don't belong here anymore so that you wake up. It's not to be they, they kick you out just because they kick you out. It's because they love you and they want you to realize the depths of sin that you're in. And again, with parents, sometimes parents have to do those hard things discipline their children, even to the point of kicking them out of the home so that they'll realize what they're doing is wrong and hopefully that they'll wake up. And then again, it breaks the hearts of parents and it breaks the heart of God even more when he has to discipline his children and they won't see what he is doing. So again, God's love, he cries out for Moab, he lets his judgment run its course. So what does that mean for us this morning as we, we hear these hard things about God? But again, I hope you see that God is love in the midst of judgment. What does that have to do with us today? How can we look at God and what can we learn about God in the midst of this? And I, and I want to point out a few things here. What do we learn about God? Well, number one, He lovingly brings discipline. He lovingly brings discipline. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 10. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 10, this is what it says. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So this is why I said God lovingly brings discipline. He disciplines his children because he loves them, just like any good parent does. Continue on. Actually, start in verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure God's deals with you as with sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But his discipline is for our good, so that we may share his holiness. So God disciplines us for our own good, just like our parents did. And God's ways are even better than our own parents' ways. That's what the, the writer of this epistle is saying, right? God disciplines us for our own good, but he does it for a purpose so that we might be more like him, right? We are molded and shaped into the image of Christ and conform as believers. This is what's happening in our lives when we get disciplined by the Lord. And we should be glad because it shows that God loves us, that we're his children, and that he wants what's best for us. So again, what do we learn about the Lord is that he lovingly brings discipline and he lovingly brings judgment. He makes that, after we haven't listened to that judgment, I mean that discipline over and over again that God brings, finally judgment comes. And that is brought because he wants to do that to wake us up. As I've been mentioning over and over again, God is trying to wake us up to his discipline through the judgment. Not only that, he does it to demonstrate his justice. God's justice will be had. Just think of this. If God did not bring about judgment on somebody that did wrong, what would that do for the innocent party who might have been hurt by that person? Think of this when you don't... It would seem unfair, right? Even in a family relationship, when the children might be fighting and you discipline one and not the other, they might see that it's not fair. Or if you don't discipline either one of them, the one who was offended might think you're not protecting them. God, way more in his lovingly bringing judgment, is protecting and avenging the innocent. God protects and avenges the innocent through his judgment. And thirdly, on what do we learn about God, is that we need to understand this, and I mentioned this in the beginning as well, is that God does not delight in punishing people. God is not an evil God who's just looking for somebody to get out of line so he could pound on him. And let me give you some scriptures that talk about this. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, the prophet speaking for the Lord says, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't delight in the death of people. But rather that the wicked should turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Do you hear the pleading heart of God? God crying out to people. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die? And specifically in this one is to Israel. O house of Israel. Even God's very own chosen nation. He will discipline and judge because they turn from him. He says, turn from your evil ways and why should you die, O house of Israel? And then in Ezekiel 18, 23, he says, I do not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. Would I not prefer he turn from his ways and live? It's a rhetorical question. God is disciplining. God is judging so that the person will turn from their ways and live. That's why he dishes out his judgment. And then later on in Ezekiel 18, verse 32, he he again reiterates, I take no pleasure in anyone's death. 
declares the Lord. So repent and live. Again, it's just like a parent when you're telling your, your child, don't do that. You know, if you do that, I'm going to have to discipline you. And as a parent, you're hoping they don't do that. I hope they don't do that. I don't want to discipline them. But you have to. And God is the same way, even more so. He doesn't take pleasure in it. He wants you to repent and live. I think of Jesus in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Remember when uh, he approached uh, Jerusalem, he said this. Luke records this. He says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Jesus wept over the entire city of Jerusalem. Why? Look at what Jesus says in verse 42. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus cries out for the city because they don't realize that the Messiah has come. And because of that, judgment is going to come upon them. And he's saying, I wish you guys would see it. And I weep over the fact that you don't because God has to bring judgment because you refuse to believe Jesus is who he says he is. The one last verse, 1 Timothy 2.4 says, Speaking of God's desire, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. God desires that all people come to him, but he knows they won't, and that grieves him. And it grieves the Lord. So what do we learn about the Lord? That he lovingly brings discipline, he lovingly brings judgment, and he does not delight in punishing the wicked. And lastly, as I've been saying over and over again, that God brings both discipline and judgment as a way to draw people to himself. Again, I don't want you to miss this fact this morning that discipline and judgment come because God is trying to wake people up and draw them to himself. And he's doing it out of love. He's doing it out of love. And let's close with this. This morning, God may be disciplining or judging some of us this morning, or you, or me. There'll be times where he's going to do that. There's going to be times in our lives that God's going to discipline us. There may be even a time that comes in someone's life where God is going to be done with disciplining, and it's time for judgment. And we have, the, we have basically the same options before us that Moab and Israel did. And number one is this, will you respond in repentance and turn to him? Will you respond as God disciplines you, as God speaks to your heart about what you're doing? Will you respond in repentance and turn to him? Or you have another option is you can double down and dig your heels in and stand your ground and say, you know what, I don't care. Or I think I could do it my way. You'll be like a refugee of Moab that says, we're leaving, we're gathering our stuff, we're not seeing this judgment as coming from God, we're going to seek protection elsewhere. Will you do that? I encourage you that you don't, and that you remember when when discipline comes on your life, because it will come on each and every one of us, we are not perfect, that we would see that as God's love, and that we would repent and turn. And so in closing this morning, 
I want to give you the chance to do that as we've been talking about um, judgment and even discipline. If you feel like, you know what, I need to, I need to come to the Lord. I feel that this is happening in my life. I want you to pray with us during this next song. We'll have a time of prayer, and our prayer team will be over here. And I want you to, to come down and let them pray for you. Maybe you're in a spot in your life, you know what, where the Lord's discipline is coming down on you. You've been doing things the wrong way. I would encourage you to do that. Don't double down. Don't dig your heels in and stand your ground because guess what? Eventually, God's judgment may come down on you. And I don't know how that's going to play out. Nobody does. But why do that? It would be like when God was telling Israel, why, Israel, will you continue to do that? Why won't you turn and repent? Why won't you live? Don't be like Israel who might go seeking these other nations for protection. Don't seek other protection outside of God. God and God alone is the one that can deliver you. And I pray that you will come to him this morning. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We know that even in, as a tough subject as judgment and discipline, as we read about it, we know that it is prompted by your love, the love for your people, love for all those who you have created. And you've created them, Lord God, to enjoy you forever and to live for you. And there may be some this morning, Lord God, who have not yet done that, who are still clinging to other things and seeking refuge and strength and peace and comfort in other things. And they have relented in giving their life to you. I pray this morning that your word would convict their hearts and that they would come and give their life over to you. And, then for the, and Lord, for those of your children who may be feeling under a, a hand of discipline from you, I pray that they too, Lord, would repent of their sins that they've been holding on to or that they've been running to and they would come back to you and they would repent of that and feel the love in your discipline and you're calling, and you're crying over them as a loving parent. And I pray, Lord, for the rest of us, that when we ever get in a spot where we've been sinning against you and we know we're being disciplined, that we would not be prideful, but that we would come to you quickly and ask for your forgiveness. So we thank you for being so loving, that you would love us, so much, Lord God, that you would discipline us and forgive us and restore us to that perfect relationship with you because of what your son, Jesus Christ, has done. And we just worship you for that, Lord God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.